Kia ora koutou. Welcome to Nurtured Behind the Scenes podcast with Dr. Katie and Dr. Whitney. Um, just a brief disclaimer at the start. So it's World Breastfeeding Week this week. Um, and um, due to some scheduling conflicts, it's been a while since we've been able to record a podcast. Um, we've, uh, we're very blessed to have um, Teresa Yaroshevich from TLC Lactation Consultant um, join us on our podcast to talk about World Breastfeeding Week. Um, and I think just like any breastfeeding journey, there's always a bit of a learning curve. And so um, I've hit this kind of learning curve with my um, podcasting <laughs> journey too. So Teresa and I were just trying a new platform and uh, we managed to record about an hour and a half of material before we realized that um, I had actually had Teresa down on the wrong setting. Um, so I hadn't been recording anything she'd said, even though we had this amazing chat and a nice catch up. Anyway, um, so if um, any, uh, any of the sentences we say don't make complete sense or seem to be referring to something we talked about earlier, um, that is why. Uh, but I think it's another thing um, we advocate a lot in our practice, which is just embracing um, imperfection um, and doing the best we can with what we've got. Um, and thankfully for me, Teresa has been very kind and gracious and agreed to um, continue our collaboration. So here's a little introduction about Teresa. Teresa has lived all over the world. Um, she was born and raised in the United States, and after what she described as a wildly out-of-character leap. She signed up to teach English to adult learners in Moscow, Russia, and found herself starting her parenting journey in the post-Soviet Russia, where she became absorbed with the universal experience of matrescence. Her first support group blossomed into an online community of more than 200 women and actually eventually launched as Russia's first La Leche League group. Her family then moved to Belarus and Ukraine, where she established similar support groups in those countries as well, and she also trained um, local women to serve as peer counsellors to their communities. Teresa certified as a IBCLC in 2010, becoming the first IBCLC in the post-Soviet Union. Teresa continues to mentor and teach in the Russian and English-speaking breastfeeding world. Welcome, Teresa, and thank you so much for joining us. So here's take two of our unboxing of World Breastfeeding Week 2022. World Breastfeeding Week is a global campaign that um, started in 1992 to raise awareness uh, to generate public awareness and support for breastfeeding. Um, and it is celebrated on the 1st to the 7th of August every year and is coordinated by World Alliance for Breastfeeding Action. Um, and so we thought we'd just take a look at um, the messaging, what the messaging is um, this year and have a little bit of a discussion about why we need World Breastfeeding Week. Thank you. We have these conversations all the time anyway, so we might might as well share them. Um, so the theme for this year's World Breastfeeding Week is Step Up for Breastfeeding, Educate and Support. 
um, with sort of four key actions, um, which is inform, anchor, engage, and galvanize. And a lovely booklet to introduce all of that. Lots of helpful information here. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a little virtual book. It comes with um, the sound of flipping pages. <laughs> I did figure out how to turn off that sound. So. Ah, oh, really? Yeah, in the settings, the three dots at the bottom, ah, you can turn the sound ah. off. Just yep. figured that out. Again, <laughs> tech is not my okay. strong suit. <laughs> no, apparently it is not mine either. <laughs> That's okay. This year, the messaging is really all about encouraging um, everybody else, not uh, not just the breastfeeding person or the breastfeeding mum to breastfeed, but actually um, uh, raising awareness for the importance of that that supportive community, um, all the way from the antenatal care, preparing for pregnancy and birth, to um, the the immediate postpartum period and neonatal period and on to breastfeeding older children. And I love how they've described it as a warm chain. So it's kind of these linking pieces along that um, pathway that parents go through from the beginning during their pregnancy and then along in the birth and the early period and then ongoing. Mm. Absolutely. And it's really um, like a, it's a it's a clear kind of imagery of how you'll meet different people like at each step of the way and, and, and everyone is kind of passing along the dyad. Oh, I think you mentioned before the warm chain came from was like a different origin. Yeah, the warm chain is typically used to talk about, you know, infant temperature after birth and that's one of the, you know, teaching education messaging points that they do with um, some of the training that's done around the world in, mm. in various settings, just to make sure that everybody understands that, you know, infants do lose heat. They do need to be kept in skin to skin and the importance of that, and getting them dried off after they're born and things like that. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's this, mm. this issue of vulnerability and, um, and how those that are surrounding the dyad and, you know, along the path can, to help preserve that. And I love that they take the, the pressure and the emphasis off of what women should be doing, because I, mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about before that women primarily, the majority of women want to breastfeed. So we don't have to kind of sell them on this idea that the thing that falls apart yeah. is when, when there's, you know, questions or concerns or well-meaning bad advice <laughs> that disrupts that yeah. process. So it's kind of the, the burden lies on those that are surrounding the dyad to give good yes. care and support. And I find it interesting that the booklet has a section on um, special circumstances and emergencies as well, which is very pertinent with all the global issues happening um around around the world with neuro wars and natural disasters and the heat waves and and just that's always ongoing there's always going to be some um yeah earthquakes and tidal waves and outbreaks of various 
natural and human-made disasters. Yeah. And I think it makes you um, think a little bit about sort of all the infrastructure that we normally take for granted that facilitate the different ways to feed your baby um, and brings it back to like how can we keep things as safe as possible um, in the event that we don't have any of our usual conveniences, which is kind of a scary thing to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, especially if you haven't been able to breastfeed or um, are needing to formula feed. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable space. Back to the concept of vulnerability, I think we take for granted in well-resourced countries that we have choices about infant feeding. And then when Mm. circumstances happen unexpectedly and that choice is taken away, like happened with Australia with the wildfires or in Ukraine Mm. with women needing to just take Mm -hmm. a very small baby and get in a car and go. And even with the formula shortage in the U S those are things that have not happened. Um, It's not like an area where we kind of think of, oh, they have, you know, they don't have clean drinking water like we would in some more remote area. They have all the things accessible, but what about, what about the supply chain? What about disruptions to the typical, typical things, like you said, that we take for granted? Mm. And it's kind of the other way, the other way around, isn't it? Usually when we're talking about having choices, you can choose to breastfeed or choose to formula feed. And in usual times, it's all about like being able to breastfeed or not. Whereas in these circumstances, um, your the fallback that you you usually take for granted may may not be available. Right. And that choice is completely removed. Where, yes. you know, somebody who's fleeing from a wildfire is not going to be able to wash the equipment that they would use at home for pumping and or bottle feeding or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. But my favorite part of the booklet is actually their specific recommendations on um, like the different, they call them the actors. So the roles, education and training of actors in the warm chain. Um, and they split them up between healthcare and community. And I think we do typically think more of the healthcare actors as people being, mm. you know, having some kind of responsibility for mm-hmm. for supporting breastfeeding. But I love that community actors list. Like it, it goes mm. to all aspects of the community and life surrounding yeah. the family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I like how they mention the policy makers and the health system and the healthcare administrators because they have such a big impact on how healthcare is carried out. Yes. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, I feel like the breastfeeding counselors, the breastfeeding support groups, the certified lactation consultants, it's all quite self-explanatory and what you'd normally think of when you think about breastfeeding support. Um do mention um, midwives and nurses, nutritionists and dietitians, obstetricians, pediatricians. And I think in New Zealand, probably um, like GPs as well. Yes. Uh, looking after the families and the communities. Yeah, I love I love the um, 
<laughs> they say, okay, I'll just read the bit about the policymakers in the health system. So policymakers need to ensure that health facilities have enough trained healthcare providers at all levels um, for the BFHI, so that's Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative and Breastfeeding Care and Counselling, plus a sufficient budget must be allocated for relevant education and training as health service policy um, pro- because if it, if it, um, if that was provided or paid for by manufacturers and distributors of um, breast milk substitutes, that's will that will create conflicts of interest and distort messages. That's right. And and I don't know. I would say you also need a sufficient budget to carry out that support, in addition to education and training. Yeah, and funding. Hmm. That's always such a big issue. That plays out in different ways in different countries, but I think it's pretty universal Mm -hmm. that healthcare dollars are stretched and that's typically not the highest priority. Which is kind of sad because we, I mean, I guess you'd have to think of it as like a really long-term investment if if we can get the early life feeding um, going optimally that should be reducing healthcare spending across the lifetime of this child who grows up to be a healthier adult. Mm-hmm. But how do you measure that, right? And it's very long term. It's not an immediate. Um, you don't see the results immediately, and you don't see the yeah. the negative outcomes immediately either. And it's not always obvious that they're connected with breastfeeding lack of support yeah yeah exactly so that ties nicely into the um the community actors the first one i wonder if this is alphabetical so the first one is the academics so they have a key role in researching and teaching about optimal forms of infant feeding and the effects of non-optimal practice yeah it does Um, look like it's alphabetical Yeah, you wouldn't think of them as first um, in importance because mm. that that's very, again, it's, it's background. Mm. But there's definitely a mm. role for that. It's the advocacy piece. Yeah. And, and also, if you want funding, then you need research to support your funding applications. Like, people want to know it's having an effect. Right. Um, and then, keeping it vague, community members... Everybody else. <laughs> All the other people. <laughs> yeah, the voters for the policymakers. <laughs> True. Well, and you think of, I mean, it's we think of family and that kind of close by community, but the layer outside of that is just the general community, which can, you know, just make decisions mm. inadvertently that mm. are discouraging yeah. for mothers and babies. Totally. Like you think of those newspaper articles about the mums breastfeeding out, out and about and being, you know, told off or asked to leave. Like that can have a really big effect on the confidence of a new mum. Yeah. And that's, yeah, completely not, not even somebody close to that person. That is a complete stranger usually that's mm. intervening in that way. Um, and then down to employers and trade unions. So there's all about um, a breastfeeding-friendly environment in the workplace and paid maternity or parental leave and uh, p- 
publicly funded breastfeeding breaks and facilities at the workplace for breastfeeding or expression of breast milk. Just even finding having having the um, the right to have lactation breaks and pumping breaks. Some people don't know that that's available still. I think in, in New Zealand it's not funded, but wouldn't it be nice if it like if you didn't have to? Because if you if you if you're taking all these non-funded, non-paid sorry non-paid breaks, it's essentially you yes. are taking a pay cut, right? You have to either work yes. longer to make up for it, or earn less because you're doing this important public health thing. So, yeah, I find that tricky. And the spaces for milk to be expressed and stored. Mm. Not a bathroom. The toilet is not the appropriate place. Not a bathroom. Nope. <laughs> or a, a cleaning closet. closet. And I think it also plays into that, like just having it normalized. So if it was normalized, then you wouldn't feel like you need to, I mean, having the option of having a private space versus if you don't feel like you need a private space, but people were feeling comfortable to have you pump in the corner without feeling offended or horrified. It's quite a, a, a difficult balance, I think, as well. A lot of women, I mean, the idea of, of privacy for for pumping or those kinds of things is, is quite individual. I, Because I've lived in different countries, I do appreciate that New Zealand is a bit more open about breastfeeding in, you know, in public. I found that to be mm. more positive than in other places I've lived. Mm. Yeah, I've had, um, so I'm Taiwanese and so I've been back to visit with my baby and there's lots of really nice um, baby feeding spaces, um, but I'll get some really well-meaning people come up to me and say, oh, why don't you go and feed in here and try and like stuff my buggy, my other children into a very small room and I, where I, whereas I was really comfortable well just sitting, where you were just sitting outside on the bench. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of times I do think it is well-meaning. Yeah. There are some people that are just being kind of annoying. But the majority of people are trying to accommodate children and, and make mothers feel comfortable. But they don't know how that feels and how that lands. Yeah, so help should be helpful. Yeah, and and that's another tricky thing with being a supporter. You don't you kind of have to figure out where that person is at, so you can figure out how to meet them and make them feel comfortable, rather than come in with what you feel like they need or they should need. Anyway, we've gone off on a tangent, I think. <laughs> um, all right. So then they talk about environmentalists, which was a big message. Was it the message last year? I think for the World Breastfeeding Week, it was good for the environment, and then they got some big backlash because. Oh, it was 2020. Support breastfeeding for a healthier planet. So some people thought that was giving too much pressure, like extra pressure on mums to breastfeed. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Um, on the other hand, there's... Yeah, I sometimes talk in my classes, antenatal classes. Sometimes parents will bring this up as kind of a benefit of breastfeeding that there's no packaging, no waste kind of thing. I do think mm -hmm. younger people are more conscious of that. And mm -hmm. they're interested in things that are more environmentally friendly. And 
you know, that's, I shouldn't, I don't think it should be directed towards the parents and that's not a pressure point in their direction, but more so from the industry perspective of, you know, the, the amount of water that's used to, to produce a product as opposed to, you know, a mother drinks, you know, just a little bit of extra water (laughs) and eats 200 extra calories or so, whatever it is. And and produces food for that baby. So in terms of efficiency, it is quite efficient. But again, I think that I can see how that can be perceived as pressure. Yeah, especially maybe if somebody is already feeling a bit traumatized about not being able to breastfeed, then they, you know, women seem to heap extra guilt on themselves coming from all different places. Well, and this this year's messaging, I think, is quite clearly directed at not the mama. <laughs> This is not about her and her choices and whether she's doing or not doing a certain behavior. But what about the what about the rest of the surrounding entities? Yeah, the the actors, the actors <laughs> in the in the space surrounding. I I like that they've include faith groups. Mm. To be honest, I think there's um, mm. various mm. you know talking with people from different faith communities historically I know for um, different faith groups it's it's quite it's quite important to have the support and and the encouragement around um, mothers with new babies and that has been part of it but then in other faith groups it can be quite like in terms of the feeding, you know, in a worship space that that's just frowned upon in certain spaces. So that can vary a lot depending on what the internal culture is with that particular faith group. I remember having a conversation with my pastor that he came up and asked <laughs> another family with a new baby, is she a good baby? <laughs> I gave him quite quite a lecture about that and he's never said that again. So because I explained that all babies are good babies and you know it's just something that everybody kind of asks without thinking of how that feels to the person hearing that yeah so the joke was no he's he's robbing banks and (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) getting getting into all sorts of mischief already of course he's a good baby don't ask that and so then there talks about fathers and partners, which I think is really important. They can really make or break um, that feeding relationship as well, whether it goes well or not. Um, having Just having a supportive partner. Um, and I was listening to a talk on the La Leche League International Conference, so they had their the 65th conference last year um and there was a a la leche league was he a la leche league leader i think it was a lactation consultant who was a father of seven um wow yeah and and he presented some research which showed that um a two two session breastfeeding class directed at fathers so because that's the space he works in specifically fathers actually um made a big difference to the breastfeeding rate in, in the people in the families that came to his class. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I think it like doubled it. So using analogies that they understand. Um, so they, and, and also 
teaching them the basics so they're not like shooting their partners in the foot with you know their concerns and they're trying to help i read another study about it was specifically about male partners this particular study but potentially could be extrapolated to any partner family support but the the dis- the language that was described as the outcome of the study is that fathers are the secret sauce of support and that you can add all sorts of practical support, you know, bringing food, all of these different activities and all of those things were good. But if you added one element, it improved the, the mother's perception of the other help. And the secret sauce was the father's supportive like words of support and encouragement and listening and and that kind of emotional um, encouragement. I just found that study so fascinating. <laughs> and I've, I've used that language in classes with fathers that they're the secret sauce and they kind of identify with that. So, And he said, um, like, he's not going to be there at three in the morning, whereas the the father or the partner Will be. would be. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that I see it over and over again. It's such a beautiful thing to see, um, a, a you know the the partnership between um, the two parents working to support the the care and feeding of this vulnerable tiny person who's entered their family. And it's it's quite it's actually quite touching to see that involvement and and what a difference that that makes for the whole situation. And as a whole, I do see partners wanting to help and make things better. And so giving them, like this other guy said, the tools of what that means and how to do it, because the, the desire is there. And then that leads on to the, nicely to grandparents and family members. So they're important as well. Um, and then about the mainstream and social media. So that's really big, um, especially since all the, the lockdowns and the pandemic years. And social media, it can be fraught though, because parents don't always know how to evaluate those sources of information. And some of it is actually, like they're mentioning here, the unethical marketing mm. that goes on, mm. which, where it's a paid partnership and that's not disclosed, the ethical considerations of that. Mm. And the and the main, I guess they call it the mainstream, which I guess kind of speaks volumes about how really breastfeeding practices is still a lot of it is still counter culture, counter mainstream culture, I guess. So it inf- influences your perception of what a baby, what to expect, what your baby should be doing, or what is how do you define if things are going well, that good baby type thing and so much of it's driven by marketing within so social media is has become it's like a hybrid of information education but also a marketing marketplace to sell products and where that can come into conflict especially with like influencers. Yes. So people they're kind of now like a model that people will look up to, but some of them are having conflicts of interest in why they say certain things or yeah. And the visual nature of social media is to look 
a certain way rather than really accurately reflecting the messiness of family life. And that can lead to a lot of unrealistic expectations and mental health issues. It's not really fair to put on parents when they're learning to do something new that they have to look good in the midst of all of it. Um, and then it, in the last community actor in the booklet is young people, hmm. which works out nicely. It's like a hopeful message. Future generations. So young people have the power to change social norms so they can play an active role in advocating for an enabling breastfeeding environment. But to do that, they need education from school and health services on breastfeeding as part of sexual and reproductive health, which is would be amazing and, and pl- do a play a big role in normalizing the little visual of young people there's like a little tiny person and a medium person and a bigger person and that kind of incorporates all of the different ages like this is not something that should be like feeding a baby is is probably the easiest part to talk about the reproductive cycle (laughs) for younger children and Having having that be a more open thing for ch- children are interested in how babies eat and, you know, even in the toys that they play with that are available. And, yeah, there's a lot of different layers of that. So I do think that the span and then you've got up to the, the you know, teenagers, young adults who are not yet parents. But I like the word innovative. We have... Um, like they are, they are the future generation of parents and they are, you know, raised in this, they're digital natives. They're raised in this environment of the social media. They know um, they have the environmentalism as a, a value that is quite high in their list of things that they're concerned about. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of good things that come from young minds and why not get them involved? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and they do find that. Um, do you f- I find that in the breastfeeding support groups, if if a new mum has had experience with even seeing other people breastfeed or look after young children, they tend to be a little bit better prepared. Oh, and even the partners, I can tell right away if a partner has handled a baby before. The level of confidence and. Um, you can just see it. Like, you know, do you have cousins or something? (laughs) Like a little baby cousin somewhere along the line, because they just have a, yeah, that level of confidence, which we would have had, again, I'd like to talk about in the, you know, previous generations, our village, that we used to see that and be involved in that. Hmm. All right, so we'll wrap up by just um, summarizing the warm chain, which is there's like six was it six steps in this book? So preparing for breastfeeding, initiating breastfeeding, establishing breastfeeding, and then maintaining breastfeeding, and and also um, needing to protect breastfeeding from all the influences we've discussed before, um, and and finally to step up for breastfeeding. So that's ties it up nicely in the little neat bow with the messaging. Absolutely. It's very nice. It's a nicely done um, educational little booklet for, you know, who they are, why they matter, and what needs to happen for each of them. 
And I think the education component component comes in loud, comes through loud and clear because they're already interacting to a large degree with families. And I think this is actually quite a nice roadmap for like parents as well to know what, what they should be able to expect from the community actors or the healthcare actors yes um that that are supporting them mm. that which again that that component of not what they are expected to do but what they should expect for others to do for them exactly yeah all right thank you teresa that was a lovely run through the waba action folder for the world breastfeeding week Yes, we are very much excited to have this as a celebration each year and look forward to that. It's an opportunity to talk with people that might not otherwise be um, open to talking about that. It gives us a good excuse to talk about our favorite thing. <laughs> and plan, plan events and latch-ons. Yeah. Have that again in the future. Someday. Just a quick boring disclaimer, none of the information discussed in the podcast is um, is supposed to be medical advice. If after listening to this podcast you have any specific questions, feel free to reach out. We'll put our email address in the show notes.